Good morning. Please stand with me, if you will. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 for the reading of God's Word. This morning, Acts chapter 9, we will read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 31. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It's good to see you this morning. I hope you're having a blessed morning already. Why don't you give me a smile? Make sure that you're all on the same page. Some of you are having trouble with the smile this morning. Acts chapter 9. It's, it's a lot easier to preach to smiling people, I'm just saying. you know. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A couple of Friday nights ago, it had been a full day, and so I decided to order pizza for the kids. And we were going to spend the evening downstairs in a basement watching a movie, kind of kicking back and relaxing. I chose a movie called The End of the Spear. The End of the Spear. Some of you are nodding your heads up and down because you know about that movie and about that story. In fact, we we have someone here related to a main feature of that story, Keegan Hawthorne. Uh, was related to Jim Elliot, or is related to Jim Elliot. I don't know how. I think actually he's making up the story because he's training to be a missionary pilot, and that gets you street cred, you know. <laughs> I, I'm related to Jim Elliot, you know, and everybody goes, whoa. The End of the Spear is a story about five men, and these men were missionaries. Five men who were missionaries who had all committed themselves to reaching the Wadani Indians in Ecuador. Now, the Wadani were violent people. They were violent in their relationships with one another. They were killing each other off there in the jungles of Ecuador. Uh, They did not get along with others Uh, other parts of their people, and they were violently killing each other. These five men knew about this tribe. No one had reached them. No one had seen them. They uh, were afraid of them. The, The local population was afraid of these native Indians. And so these five men committed themselves to go and take the gospel to this tribe, the Wadani Indians in Ecuador. The story unfolds, these, these men land their plane on a sandbar and they begin to try to make contact uh, with the Indians, and they do. Three of these Indians come out, two women and a man, and they come out and they exchange um, gifts and they talk with one another and they, they spend some time with one another. And through a series of unfortunate circumstances, two of those Indians go back to the tribe and lie about the intentions of these men, of these foreign missionaries, and 
the men of the tribe come and spear the five missionaries to death. The five men who commit their lives to go and reach the Wadani Indians uh, die at their hands. But that's not how the story ends, if you know the story. It's an amazing story. Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint. Nate Saint was the pilot who brought the missionaries in. Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, end up making contact with the tribe and go to live with the tribe, the very tribe of people who just killed their loved ones. And through that ministry, Elizabeth Elliot's there for a little while, but Rachel Saint actually remains with these people the rest of her life. And she brings the gospel to them. The very people that killed her brother. The very people that killed her family and her friends. She brings the gospel to them. And these Indians are gloriously converted. The very people. If you watch the movie, you'll see the the son of Nate Saint. When I watch that scene, I, I get teary-eyed because I realize, you know, he's going to die and he's saying goodbye to his son and his son doesn't know that his dad's about to die. And that, that boy uh, grows up to also go and live with that tribe. And the very man who spears his dad becomes like a spiritual father to him. It's an incredible story. If, I, if you haven't read that story or, uh, or even watched that movie, I would encourage you to do that with your family. It would be a, a real encouragement to you. What a, a story, a powerful story of conversion. And we all love those types of stories, don't we? We all love those types of stories of God's power doing the impossible, God saving the unsavable, God working in such a way uh, to bring radical transformation in someone's life. We love powerful stories of transformation and change, powerful stories of conversion. In our text this morning, we see the most dramatic story of conversion, I believe, in all of Scripture. The story that we see today is the most powerful story of conversion recorded for us in God's word. And it's not included here in the book of Acts to to entertain us. It's not here to um, occupy our curiosities. It is here to instruct us. It's here to teach us. As we have observed over the course of our study in Acts, God is going to bring his glory to every part of the earth through the proclamation of the good news regarding his son. And nothing will hinder the spread of that good news. Nothing. That's what the book of Acts shows us. Nothing will hinder the preaching of the good news of God's kingdom and of God's king. Even martyrdom will not stop it. And as if to underline this point, and this is why it's included here for us, 
in order to underline and, and highlight and bold this point, God chooses to do something here in Acts 9 that is beyond imagining, unthinkable. In order to demonstrate the triumph of the good news over every foe, over every obstacle, God chooses to take his greatest opponent, the greatest opponent, the greatest persecutor in the early church. God chooses to take his greatest opponent and turn him into his greatest missionary. Unthinkable, incredible, unimaginable. Look at the description here of the man God chooses to save. You can see it there in verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, this is what they called those who followed Jesus in the early days, the way, belonging to the way, either men or women, he might bring them good bound to Jerusalem and have them imprisoned, possibly killed. Is there anything lovely in this description? As you read this, I think we we read the text of Scripture sometimes and we just let it pass by us. But think about who this man is. Think about who Saul is. Saul hates the name of Jesus. He finds this good news, an affront to his religion, to how he thinks of God. And he wants to do everything in his power to end the spread of the good news. He is the opponent of God, the opponent of the gospel. Is there anything lovely in this description of Paul? Is there anything meriting a look from God or meriting kindness or favor from God? Listen to the description that Saul gives himself many years after his conversion. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Saul says of himself, I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's what Saul says of himself. In Acts 22 Paul is giving a description of his conversion, and he says, I persecuted this way to the death. He says, I was binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In Acts 26, Paul again gives the story of his conversion. You know, the the story of Paul's conversion happens three times in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 9, in chapter 22, and in chapter 26. It's a major, major emphasis here in Acts. The conversion of Saul. In Acts 26, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. These descriptions, I'm reading these descriptions for you because I want you to see the nature this morning of true conversion. That's what I want to do this morning is define for you what conversion is. What does it mean to be converted? What What does it mean to be truly converted? Conversion is the work of God in confronting a sinner with the reality of who Jesus is, leading to a total reorientation of life. This is what conversion is. Conversion is the work of God in confronting a sinner with the reality of who Jesus is, leading to a total reorientation of life. In these passages I've just read about Paul, these give us this first truth about conversion. Conversion is the work of God. There is absolutely no other way to explain the change that takes place in this man. He goes from breathing threats and hating the name of Jesus to giving his entire life for the sake of the name of Jesus. How does that happen? It is the work of God. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to this. Who were born, they, they, they become children of God. Those who believe upon the name of Jesus, they are born as children of God, not of blood. What does that mean? Not of blood. Here, here's what that simply means. You're, you're not born into God's family physically. You, you, you're not born into God's family because of who your parents are says it right there. You're not born as children of God by blood. You you don't become a Christian because your parents are Christians. You, You don't become a Christian because of your heritage. You're not born a child of God because of blood. Nor, it goes on to say, of the will of the flesh. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. This is not something that we can produce in ourselves. This is not something I can work to achieve in my flesh. You're born a child of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You're not born into the family of God because you want to be. 
or because somebody else wants you to be. It is so plain and so clear in Scripture, and yet we fight against this truth. You're not born into the family of God by blood or by the will of the flesh or by the will of man. It's not your desire. It's not your choice. You're born, it goes on to say, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You are born into the family of God by God's work. It is the work of God. He is the initiator of conversion, not man. Listen here to another passage of Scripture, the biblical description of mankind, both Jew and Gentile, found in Romans 3. None, this is Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. Let's sit in that statement for a second. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, that is both Jew and Gentile, together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. Their throat, both Jew and Gentile, their throat is an open grave. What is that picturing? Their throat is an open grave. It's drawing a picture for you. What, what does the throat lead down to? Your heart, right? Their throat is an open grave. You look down your throat, right? Not anatomically, right? It's poetic. I see a couple of people like, well, actually your throat leads down to you. It's, it's, it's poetry, people. Get, get a grip here. So poetically, your throat is an open grave, right? Out of your heart, the mouth speaks, Your heart is a grave. Throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, both Jew and Gentile, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are, man, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This description in Romans 3 is the description of every man and every woman and every child that has ever inhabited the earth or ever will. This is who we are. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That's who we are. Now to say then that some people choose God on their own initiative is a blatant disregard for the clear teaching of this scripture. You didn't choose God. 
Nothing in you wanted to choose God. You couldn't choose God because you didn't want to choose God. To say that someone is able to choose God on their own is to say that in them lies something good. Where we've seen here in Romans 3, there's nothing in us that is good. Someone might ask then, well, what about free will? What about free will? Don't we believe that we have a choice in this? Doesn't man have a free will? The answer is yes. Yes, man has a free will. Did you know that? We believe, we're Calvinists here, I am at least. We believe that man has a free will. But, but you haven't asked about man's nature. Man is free. He is free to choose. But his nature is corrupt. Did you read the passage that we, or hear the passage that we just read? That tells you, this passage tells you what every single person does with their free will. It's not not that man doesn't have a free will. It's that our free will freely chooses to hate God. That's what we choose to do. Because it is our nature. Our sinful, God-hating nature. We will not choose God because we don't want to. He is not lovely to us. His power and sovereignty feel restricting to us. We, we feel as if he is unjust, unmerciful, unkind. This is our view of God by nature. And why would you want to follow someone that you don't believe to be good? See, we have this view of God that needs to be changed. And we can't accomplish that change. Not by blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man. It only happens by God. Conversion is the work of God. And this brings us to the second part of our sentence about conversion. It is the work of God in which he confronts a sinner with the reality, the truth of who Jesus is. Saul, here in our passage, is on a hell-bent path against God and the name of Jesus. And as he is going on his path, as he is going in his way, Jesus confronts him. Did you see that? Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul is confronted that day with the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus stands in his way and confronts him in glorious light with the reality of who he really is. And this glorious light serves to blind Saul physically. He's blinded by the light. 
But in that blindness, that physical blindness, Saul sees for the first time. He sees for the first time who Jesus is. The spiritual awakening, the spiritual awakening, and that's what conversion is. It's a spiritual awakening. The spiritual awakening to the reality of who Jesus truly is. This awakening, this spiritual awakening stands at the core of the doctrine of conversion. John 1 hints at this when the writer of John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They beheld His glory. They saw who He was, the only Son from the Father. Listen to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is this passage where Jesus asks Peter, Who do you say that I am? Listen to this carefully. Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There we see again. Conversion involves a spiritual awakening where we see the truth of who Jesus is. And who accomplishes that work? It's not my flesh. It's not mankind, the will of man. It is the work of the Father to take, as it were, scales from the eyes to show us the truth, the worth, the beauty, the reality of who Jesus is. Every one of us has a desperate need that only God can accomplish. We need to see Jesus for who he truly is. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, we've seen in the book of Acts, as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he is the Lord and the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the one who put on flesh and became a man so that he could bear man's sin and man's death upon himself. He is the one who was raised up by God in triumph over sin and death. He is the one who ascended to the Father. And right now, at this very moment, shares in the glory of the Father. He is God. He's God. Hebrews tells us He is the one who sustains the universe by the word of His power. That's who Jesus is. This is the one who was, who was killed 
by evil men and raised from the death. He is the rightful king of all the earth. He is worthy of all glory and honor and power. Listen to that, listen to that quote again from Revelation. He is worthy of all glory and honor and power. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. Of all glory and honor and power. What does that mean? He's worthy of all glory and honor and power. Have you, have you stopped and thought about that statement? He is worthy of all glory and honor and power. What does that simple statement say? He is worthy. That means he alone is worthy of all glory. I am worthy of no glory. If he's worthy of all of it, I get none of it. He is worthy of all glory. He is worthy of all honor. He alone is worthy of all honor and power, authority. He alone is worthy of everything. He alone is the one that creation is formed around. Andrew Peterson's song. I'm not a big Andrew Peterson fan, to be honest with you. But I love the song that he's written. Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? He is. He is. We listened to that song this morning with the kids. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. And because he's worthy of all of it, that means that my life belongs to him. Every part of my life, everything that my life could ever want should be about him. Now that's, that's one thing. It's one thing to say that while I'm standing up here talking to all of you, isn't it? Did you know something? Everybody acts like preaching takes a lot of courage. Standing up here in front of a lot of people that agree with me about all these things doesn't take all that much courage. In fact, it's quite kind of enjoyable. I get to say a bunch of true things about God and you all go, yes, all right. It's easy to say that standing up here. It's one thing to say it in the church house where everyone around you is saying the same thing. Everyone around us agrees with us. It's one thing to say that when your profession, your profession in Christ will gain you some standing or place or position or acceptance. It's easy to say that being from a Christian family. It's easy to say Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor and power. It's easy to say that in a Christian family, isn't it? But how about, how about when our profession of faith in Jesus, how about when that profession will ruin you in the sight of other people? How about when this profession of faith in Christ, this statement of the fact that Christ is worthy of all glory and honor and power, what if it costs you
What happens when it deprives you of something that you want, a relationship that you want, a job that you want, a career that you want? What happens when this profession of faith in Jesus Christ requires obedience? This is, this is what those enclosed countries face. Do you know there's places, in fact, a good majority of the rest of the world, to profess faith in Jesus Christ will cost you possibly everything. Those professions in those countries are not made lightly. Conversion is easy to see in some countries where it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Because you're, you're, not, you're not going to profess Christ unless you mean business. Unless you've actually seen who Jesus is. The danger in our situation is that professing Jesus may gain us something that we want. And so it muddies the waters so often for us. Where, where does true conversion evidence itself in our lives here, in our society, in our situation? Where does true conversion evidence itself? I'll tell you where conversion really manifests itself. Conversion, true conversion, manifests itself in the everyday decisions and choices that we make. It reveals itself in how you live with other people. It declares itself, conversion declares itself when no one is with you making you do anything. That's where conversion shows itself. Conversion evidences itself in what motivates us. The person who has been converted has turned from his own way. He has turned from his sin. Why? Because he's been confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. True conversion involves repentance and faith. Sometimes we misunderstand repentance and faith. We think of these as two separate things, repentance and faith, when in fact they are the same thing. They're inseparable. And, and, and what are they really? They are not as much work. Sometimes people think, well, repentance is a work. Repentance is a work. We can't add works to salvation. No, you're, you're misunderstanding, see. Repentance and faith really are one and the same thing. They're inseparable graces that God gives to us. And, and they are not as much a work as they are a response. Repentance and faith are a response to realizing who Jesus is. When we see Jesus in his worth, when we see Jesus in his glory, when we see Jesus in his preciousness, in his beauty, when we see Jesus and who he is, we don't want our sin anymore. Our sin is not appealing to us anymore. 
our way becomes abhorrent to us. The path that we were on, we no longer want. I don't work by repentance. I'm just responding to the, the, the sight that I've been given. That's all repentance is. Repentance and faith are inseparable. I've seen Jesus. How can I stay on my path? I want to turn around. This is conversion. Conversion involves repentance and faith. You want to pray for people in your life to be converted? Pray that they would be given the gift of the ability to see Jesus for who he really is. That they would be given the gift of repentance and faith. It's a response to seeing the truth of who Jesus is. When you behold Christ with open eyes for the first time, you will no longer want your sin. And those of you who've been converted understand what I'm talking about. You will not care if it costs you the world. This is why people in closed countries get baptized even though they know they might die for it because it doesn't matter anymore. I've seen Jesus. It will not care. I, I, it does not matter. I do not care if it costs me the world. He's worthy of all my life. Lord, fill us by your spirit with the truth of who you are. It's what I pray for you. It's what Paul prayed for those that he wrote to in Ephesians. I want you to see with your eyes, the eyes of your heart. I want you to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. Conversion is the work of God in which he confronts the sinner with the truth of who he is, leading to a total reorientation of life. And this transformation, this reorientation of life, is what we see in Saul's life, isn't it? Everything changes for this man. This change we see recorded for us in the remainder of the story. We see that now his life no longer belongs to him. He had been choosing his own road in opposition to God, in opposition to the name of Jesus. Now his road is chosen for him. I'm afraid that in so many of our contexts, We speak of coming to faith in Jesus as if Jesus is joining us in our journey or Jesus is joining us on our road. Jesus is not joining us on our road. He's not joining you in your journey. Jesus did not confront you on your path so that he could join and be with you on your destructive path. No, he he confronts you on your path so that he can give you a different path one that will be reoriented around him and not yourself. And this is the truth I give you all the time. This path that he chooses for us will often be one that we would not choose for ourselves, but a path which will bring him glory. And this is exactly what he does for Saul. Saul is no longer choosing his path. Look at it there. In the description, he speaks to a, a man named Ananias. Jesus does. Jesus goes to Ananias. 
the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Like, he doesn't know who that is. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, um, Lord, you see, we see here with Ananias that, that the Lord is choosing for him a path that he wouldn't choose either. This is what he does. Lord, I, I've, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, and this is, this is the glorious truth of it, look at it. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is given a new path. A new path that will take him around the known world at the time to spread the good news that he once opposed and sought to extinguish. Now we will see as we go through Acts from chapters 13 through 28, that section of Acts actually follows Saul on this journey as he spreads the news and he suffers greatly for this testimony. We will see that. But I want you to focus on that, that phrase. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Is it God's will that his servants suffer? Is it God's will that his people suffer? It sure seems so. It sure seems so. In fact, we see all through Scripture, this is indeed God's choice for us. But those who have been converted... Those who have seen Jesus for who he is find it now an honor to suffer for the sake of his name. What a reorientation of life. But this reorientation is not unique to Saul's experience. Now, there there are parts of this story that are unique to Saul, right? Jesus isn't going to physically blind you with his glorious light. You're not going to be called to be an apostle. You might not even be called to be a missionary in the sense that Paul was. But the reorientation of life is not unique to Saul. In fact, this reorientation of life is how all of us that are converted experience conversion. Hear it in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Here's what's said in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul, same man who's converted here, Saul, now Paul, writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, the report concerning the kind of reception we had among you is good, he says, how you turned, how you turned from God, or to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen also to 2 Corinthians 5, such an important passage. Listen carefully to these words. For the love of Christ controls us. Again, the picture here. We were walking on our own way. We were doing our own path. But now the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Conversion is the work of God. In which he confronts sinners with the reality of who Jesus is, resulting in complete reorientation of life. From idols to serve the living and true God. No longer living for self, but living for the one who died and was raised. That's conversion. That's what it looks like. When Jesus confronts the sinner on their path with the reality of who he is, he gives then a radically new path that is no longer oriented around self, but around him. And a man who has seen Jesus, or a woman who has seen Jesus, and seen who he is, is only too happy to relinquish control of their life to Him who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy of all of it. Why would I want to keep my life for myself? I saw this lived out last night. My wife and I had the pleasure of sitting down with a lady last night who doesn't go to our church. She came over, spent an hour or two with us talking about the suffering that she's going through in her life, real suffering, and has been enduring for years. She's been enduring suffering for years and she will continue to endure. There, there's, no, there's no end to it, okay? It's not like, I hope it, goes, I hope it goes away by next week or next month or next year. No, this is going to be her journey. This is going to be her path for years to come. And she knows that. She's sharing with us what's going on in her life. Do you know how I saw conversion, true conversion evidence itself in her life? You know what her prayer was? Her prayer was, I just want to make much of Jesus in this. I I just want Jesus to be glorified in this. Will you pray for me, Paul, that Jesus would be glorified in this? See, that's the evidence of true conversion. When our life is no longer about ourselves, But every day, we embrace it as an opportunity, whatever it contains, an opportunity to glorify Jesus. And that's what we want. This becomes the object 
this becomes the goal of Saul's life. It is a radical transformation. Immediately, he says, it says, he starts preaching, Jesus is the Son of God! He's the Son of God! And you know what that caused? People went, um, isn't this the guy... Isn't this the guy that just, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, just a few months ago, isn't this the same guy? What happened to him? He was confronted with the reality of who Jesus was, which led to a complete reorientation of life. Jesus is the Son of God. And it goes on, if you look there at the end of chapter 9, he preaches, <laughs> over and over it says he preaches the name of Jesus. He preaches boldly the name of Jesus. And what does it get him? People want to kill him for it. He goes from being the one who's persecuting to being the one who's persecuted, all for the sake of the name of Jesus. He goes from being the one who's trying to extinguish the preaching of the good news to be the one who's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Becomes his reputation. This is how he becomes known. Isn't this true of us, right? I said last week, if you knew me when I was 20, the last thing in the world you would ever think is that I would be standing up in front of people talking about Jesus. You would not have thought I would be a pastor at 20 years old. But Jesus, by his grace, reoriented my life around him. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done. Saul's life is reoriented, and this change becomes discernible, undeniable, hard to believe. I could share so many stories as could you. In fact, one of your assignments this week is when you meet in your small group is to talk about some of those stories of conversion, even to talk about your own story of conversion. When did you realize your sin? When did you realize the preciousness of who Jesus is, which always involves seeing your sin? When I see Jesus in his glory and his worth, it exposes my sin and my selfishness. I want to turn from it. It'd be good for you to spend some time this week with the people in your small group talking about that. Giving it some more definition. Giving it some more specificity. It'd be good for you. A couple of thoughts here at the end. You're not supposed to do that when you're speaking. You're not supposed to say this is the end because then everybody starts shutting down and closing their Bibles and all that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to give some of you hope because you're looking at me like, is this almost over? here's, Here's the thing. Some implications for us from this simple truth that conversion is a work, the work of God in which he confronts sinners with the reality of who Jesus is resulting in a complete reorientation of life. Some implications, and this is a, does not exhaust all the implications, this is just a few of them. First implication, conversion is the work of God, therefore we should rest in God's sovereign power to do his work. We should rest in God's sovereign power to convert those 
that we love, our children. Are you anxious about the salvation of your children? Are you wanting to get them to make a profession or get them to make a decision so that you can feel better about their eternal destiny? Listen, this is God's work, not yours. We can't manipulate it. We can't force it. We can't manufacture it. We are to rest in God's sovereign power to convert those who are sinners. Rest in his power. Pray, pray for their eyes to be open as Saul's eyes were open on that day on the road to Damascus. Pray that. Lord, open their eyes as you open Saul's eyes. Confront them with the reality of who you are, Lord. Show them who you are. And, And then our task becomes what? Not to force conversion. Our task becomes what? To talk about Jesus to talk about his glory, to talk about his worth, to talk about his, his preciousness. This is what our job is. I, I used the example of children a minute ago. Our job to our children is to show that we find Jesus worthy in every part of our life. And when we fail, we confess that. And we acknowledge that. But we're pointing to Jesus, praying that God would open their eyes. Don't, don't seek to manipulate or control the process. It's not your work. It's his. Doesn't that take just an amazing amount of pressure off of you? I'm not the one that has to do the work. He is. That doesn't mean I'm inactive. No, I am working to make Jesus known wherever I am. But it's his work to convert, not mine. Then there's the question of, am I converted? I hear that question all the time. People ask, am I converted Am I really a Christian? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Let's simplify this. Who do you say Jesus is? As, as he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? This statement about who Jesus is should have then logical effect upon your life. If Jesus is the Lord and Christ, if you profess him to be the Lord and Christ, live as if he is the Lord and Christ. And if you say, I just don't think that's worth it, I just don't find that to be what I want to do with my life. Well, there's your answer. That's, that's the answer. I think for most of us, we see the value and worth and beauty of Jesus and we want to live for him and we see our sin and we hate it. We want to be rid of it we want to go to Jesus, that desire, that's the evidence of conversion. Go to Jesus. Seeing Jesus makes me hate my sin and want his worth to be known. 
for those of us who would say that we have experienced this reality, this conversion where God has done a work to show us who Jesus is, transforming, reorienting our life around him. Hear me carefully. You and I need to live daily in our conversion. This is what Hebrews calls our confession. In Hebrews it says, hold fast to our profession. Hold fast to our confession. Hold fast. This is our greatest need, is to live in our confession. Daily, we need to fight to see who Jesus is, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, to turn from our sin daily and to orient our life around him. I am greatly encouraged. I sit down with people all the time who are discouraged because they are they see the, their sin. They see their failings. They see their faults. I'm constantly encouraged and privileged to be able to, to look at them and say, I know it's hard to see, but I see it. I see the change that's happened over months, over years. I've, I've seen it. I see how you go to Jesus and your inclination is to go to Jesus in your suffering. I see how in your parenting and in your marriage and in your life circumstances, you want Jesus to be glorified. I am so encouraged by the evidences of conversion that take place in your life. And this is why we need each other. This is why we need each other. The guy who sits down in his basement by himself and just thinks to himself, am I converted? Am I converted? Am I converted? Am I converted? I don't know. Am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But he's, all, he's doing all that in isolation. He's never going to get assurance that way. You have to live with people. You have to live around other believers. And this is what we desperately need to help us. We need people to sit across from us and say, brother, sister, I see it. I see it. I see it in your ongoing repentance. I see it in your growing trust. I see it in your growing love for others in the name of Jesus. I see it in your desires and your motivations. Keep the faith. Look to Jesus. Keep running. This is what we all need. The work of conversion is the work of God. in which he confronts the sinner with the reality of who Jesus is, resulting in a complete reorientation of life. We want to treasure conversion here and the truth of conversion at Trinity. We have an equipping hour that will begin about 30 minutes after our service is over where we're going over the doctrine of conversion. And we'd love to have you, if you have not joined with us to this point, we'd love to have you there at that class. I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, our salvation is all about you. You have not saved us to keep us or let us remain in our sin. You have saved us to rescue us, not just from the results of our sin, but from all of our sin. You've done that work.
We confess our sin. We confess our failures. We confess the fragility of our hearts and our minds. How quick we are to forget what needs to be fixed in our minds. How hard it is for us to remember what we need to remember. But you are gracious. I pray for Trinity Church. I pray for each one of us here that profess faith in you. That you would give us, even this week, daily, a fresh view of who you are. That we would seek you in your word. That we would seek you in fellowship with other believers. That we would seek to see you, to know you. And that through that knowledge and through that sight that you give us by your grace, you would motivate us, as Second Corinthians says, to not live for ourselves, but to live for you, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, in the midst of work and play and family life, in every area of our life, that all of it would be submitted and oriented around you in your glory. I pray for those in our midst, and they are here, who really have not seen you, Jesus, for who you truly are. And it's a struggle for them to to know why anyone would give up everything for your sake. I pray that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith. I pray for our children here in our midst that you would, by your grace, give them the gift of repentance and faith that you would bring them to the knowledge of who you are by your gracious work, that they would come to a place of right response and repentance and faith. Make them your own, we pray. And cause our hearts to rest, Father, in your sovereign power, knowing that it is your work, not ours. We would trust in you Rest in you. Be active to make the name of Jesus known wherever we live and whatever we do. We pray all of this for the sake of your name. Amen.